John 18. And um, I read it through in very many different translations this week to see what might translate the best to, to reading aloud a long passage of scripture. And as you know, the Bible is not written in English, so you're free to pick the translation in English of your choice. Uh, some are more accurate, like to the grammar, than others. Others are more flowing, easier to read. New Living is easier to read. And I am going to read the entire Easter story for us. So 10 minutes, 15 minutes, something like that. I am just craving, this year particularly, longer passage of scripture to be read in their entirety so you can hear what the Bible has to say for itself rather than a verse taken and highlighted. So we'll do some highlighting after. But if we did nothing other than gather and read the Easter story, that's enough. If we did nothing other than gather and praise God, say, Happy Easter, you know, we worship you, thank you, that's enough. My words at the end, maybe they can be something to help us connect with it, but it's God's word that's got to speak. It's not mine. So thank you, Mom, for letting me steal your New Living Translation because I meant to go down to my office and get mine, and I didn't. So here we go. Plan B. Uh, we are going to read John chapters 18 through 21. <coughs> so this encompasses... Jesus's betrayal. Um, this encompasses his trial. This encompasses his crucifixion, his resurrection, and his appearance to the disciples at the other end. And um, I know it's a longer reading, maybe even longer than we're accustomed to, um, but I hope you find it beautiful. As I was reading through, I was just finding it so beautiful to hear the whole story, and I want you to pay particular attention to all the distinct personalities and individuals in this. That's why taking one verse just wasn't like scratching that itch for me this year. Think about how Judas relates to Jesus. Think about how Peter relates to Jesus. Think about how the disciples relate to Jesus. And not just in a moment, but over this time, that ebb and flow of, I'm doing fine, I'm failing, we're, we're great, we're winning, we're losing, I have hope, I have fear. That feels like the gospel story to me. Not just the hallelujah moments. Because then sometimes we think every moment is supposed to be a hallelujah moment. Well, the hallelujah moments come after the waiting, after the suffering, after the struggle. And that's how it was in the Easter story. So I just want to hear it. And I want us to try to even maybe identify with some of the people. Think of Pilate. Think of Jesus' mother, Mary. Just keep these people in mind. Uh, and that will let us really apply it to ourselves and see what God is going to say to us. So yeah, Father, please speak to us. Holy Spirit, please speak through the reading of your word. John chapter 18. After saying these things, Jesus crossed the Kidron Valley with his disciples and he entered a grove of olive trees. Now Judas, the betrayer, knew this place because Jesus had often gone there with his disciples. The leading priests and the Pharisees had given Judas a contingent of Roman soldiers and temple guards to accompany him. Now with blazing torches, lanterns, and weapons, they arrived at the Olive Grove. Jesus fully realized all that was going to happen to him, so he stepped forward to meet them. Who are you looking for, he asked. Jesus the Nazarene, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. As Jesus said, I am he, they all drew back and they fell to the ground. And once more he asked them, who are you looking for? Again, they replied, Jesus the Nazarene. I told you, I am he, Jesus said. And since I am the one you want, let these others go. Now he did this to fulfill his own statement that I will not lose a single one of those you have given me. But Simon Peter drew his sword and slashed off the right ear of Malchus, the high priest's slave. But Jesus said to Peter, put your sword back into its sheath. Shall I not drink from the cup of suffering the Father has given me? So the soldiers and their commanding officers and the temple guards, they arrested Jesus and tied him up. 
First, they took him to Annas, the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest at that time. Caiaphas was the one who had told the other Jewish leaders, it's better that one man should die for all the people. So Simon Peter followed Jesus, as did another of the disciples. That other disciple was acquainted with the high priest, so he was allowed to enter the high priest's courtyard with Jesus. Peter had to stay outside the gate. Then the disciple who knew the high priest spoke to the woman watching at the gate, and she let Peter in. The woman asked Peter, you're not one of them as disciples, are you? No, he said, I am not. And because it was cold, the household servants and the guards had made a charcoal fire, and they stood around it warming themselves. And Peter stood with them, warming himself. Inside, the high priest began asking Jesus about his followers and what he had been teaching them. And Jesus replied, everyone knows what I teach. I have preached regularly in the synagogues and in the temple where the people gather. I have not spoken in secret. Why are you asking me this question? Ask those who heard me. They know what I say. Then one of the temple guards standing nearby slapped Jesus across the face. Is that the way to answer the high priest? He demanded. And Jesus replied, if I said anything wrong, you must prove it. But if I'm speaking the truth, why are you beating me? Then, Jesus, or then Annas bound Jesus and sent him off to Caiaphas, the high priest. Meanwhile, as Simon Peter was standing by the fire warming himself, they asked him again, You're not one of his disciples, are you? He denied, saying, No, I am not. But one of the household slaves of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Didn't I see you there in the olive grove with Jesus? And again, Peter denied it, and immediately a rooster crowed. Jesus' trial before Caiaphas ended in the early hours of the morning, and then he was taken to the headquarters of the Roman governor. His accusers didn't go inside because it would defile them, and they wouldn't be allowed to celebrate the Passover. So Pilate, the governor, went out to them and said, What's your charge against this man? We wouldn't have handed him over to you if you weren't a criminal, they retorted. Well, then take him away and judge him by your own law, Pilate told them. Only the Romans are permitted to execute someone, the Jewish leaders replied, and this fulfilled Jesus' prediction about the way he would die. Then Pilate went back into his headquarters and called for Jesus to be brought to him. Are you the king of the Jews? He asked him. Jesus replied, is this your own question or did others tell you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate retorted. Your own people and their leading priests brought you to me for trial. Why? What have you done? And Jesus answered, my kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. If it were, my followers would fight to keep me from being handed over to the Jewish leaders. But my kingdom is not of this world. Pilate said, so you are a king. Jesus replied, as you say, I am a king. Actually, I was born and came into the world to testify to the truth. And all who love the truth recognize that what I say is true. What is truth? Pilate asked. Then he went out again to the people and told them, he is not guilty of any crime. But you have a custom of asking me to release one prisoner each year at Passover. Would you like me to release this king of the Jews? But they shouted back, No, not this man. We want Barabbas. Barabbas was a revolutionary. Then Pilate had Jesus flogged with a lead-tipped whip. The soldiers wove a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they put a purple robe on him. Hail, king of the Jews, they mocked, and they slapped him across the face. Pilate went outside again and said to the people, I'm going to bring him out to you now, but understand clearly, I find him not guilty. Then Jesus came out, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said, look, here is the man. And when they saw him, the leading priests and the temple guards began shouting, crucify him, crucify him, take him yourselves and crucify him. Pilate said, I find him not guilty. The Jewish leaders replied, by our law, he ought to die because he called himself the son of God. 
When Pilate heard this, he was more frightened than ever, and he took Jesus back into the headquarters again and asked him, where are you from? But Jesus gave no answer. Why don't you talk to me, Pilate demanded? Don't you realize that I have the power to release or crucify you? And Jesus said, you would have no power over me at all unless it were given to you from above. So the one who handed me over to you has the greater sin. Then Pilate tried to release him, but the Jewish leaders shouted, if you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who declares himself a king is a rebel against Caesar. Now when they said this, Pilate brought Jesus out to them again. And then Pilate sat down on the judgment seat on the platform that is called the stone pavement in Hebrew, Gabbatha. It was now about noon on the day of preparation for the Passover. And Pilate said to the people, look, here is your king. Away with him, they yelled. Away with him, crucify him. What? Crucify your king? Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the leading priests shouted back. And then Pilate turned Jesus over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus away. And carrying the cross by himself, he went to the place called the place of the skull, in Hebrew, Golgotha. There they nailed him to the cross, and two others were crucified with him, one on either side, with Jesus between them. And Pilate posted a sign on the cross that read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Now the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek, so that many people could read it. Then the leading priests objected and said to Pilate, Change it from the king of the Jews to, He said I am the king of Jews. Pilate replied, No. What I have written, I have written. And when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they divided his clothes among the four of them, and they also took his robe. But it was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said, Rather than tearing it apart, let's throw dice for it. And this fulfilled the scripture that says, They divided my garments among them and threw dice for my clothing. And so that is what they did. Standing near the cross were Jesus' mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother standing there beside the disciple that he loved, he said, Dear woman, here is your son. And he said to the disciple, Here is your mother. And from then on, this disciple took her into his home. Jesus knew that his mission was now finished. And to fulfill scripture, he said, I am thirsty. And a jar of sour wine was sitting there. So they soaked a sponge in it and put it on a hyssop branch and held it up to his lips. And when Jesus had tasted it, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and released his spirit. It was the day of preparation. And the Jewish leaders didn't want the bodies hanging there the next day, which was the Sabbath. And a very special Sabbath because it was the Passover. So they asked Pilate to hasten their deaths by ordering that their legs be broken. Then their bodies could be taken down. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the two men crucified with Jesus. When they came to Jesus, they saw he was already dead, so they didn't break his legs. One of the soldiers, however, pierced his side with a spear. Then immediately blood and water flowed out. And this report is from an eyewitness giving an accurate account. He speaks the truth so you also can believe. These things happened in fulfillment of the scriptures that said, Not one of his bones will be broken, and they will look on the one whom they have pierced. Afterward, Joseph of Arimathea, who had been a secret disciple of Jesus because he feared the Jewish leaders, asked Pilate for permission to take down Jesus' body. When Pilate gave permission, Joseph came and took the body away, and with him came Nicodemus, the man who had come to Jesus at night. He brought about 75 pounds of perfumed ointment made from myrrh and aloes, and following Jewish burial custom, they wrapped Jesus' body with the spices in long sheets of linen cloth. Now, the place of crucifixion was near a garden where there was a new tomb never used before, and so because it was the day of preparation for the Jewish Passover, and since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Early on Sunday morning, while it was still dark, 
Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. And she ran and found Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. She said, they've taken the Lord's body out of the tomb. We don't know where they've put him. So Peter and the other disciple started out for the tomb. They were both running. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And he stooped and looked in and saw the linen wrappings lying there. But he didn't go in. But then Simon Peter arrived and he went inside and he also noticed the linen wrappings lying there while the cloth that had covered Jesus' face was folded up and lying apart from the other wrappings. Then the disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in he saw and he believed. For until then they still hadn't understood what the scriptures said, that Jesus must rise from the dead. And then they went home. Mary was standing outside the tomb crying, and as she wept, she stooped and looked in. She saw two white-robed angels, one sitting at the head and the other at the foot of the place where Jesus' body had been lying. Dear woman, why are you crying? The angels asked her. Because they've taken away my Lord, she replied, and I don't know where they've put him. She turned to leave, and she saw someone standing there. It was Jesus, but she didn't recognize him. Dear woman, why are you crying? Jesus asked her. Who are you looking for? She thought he was the gardener. Sir, she said, if you've taken him away, tell me where you've put him and I will go and get him. Mary, Jesus said. And she turned to him and cried out, Rabboni, which is Hebrew for teacher. Don't cling to me, Jesus said, for I haven't yet ascended to the Father. But go find my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene found the disciples and told them, I've seen the Lord. And then she gave gave them his message. Now that Sunday evening, the disciples were meeting behind locked doors because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. And suddenly Jesus was standing there among them. Peace be with you, he said. And as he spoke, he showed them the wounds in his hand and his side. And they were filled with joy when they saw the Lord. And again, he said, peace be with you. As the father has sent me, so I am sending you. And then he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, if you forgive anyone's sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. One of the twelve disciples, Thomas, nicknamed the twin, was not with the others when Jesus came. And so later they told him, we've seen the Lord. But he replied, I won't believe it unless I see the nail wounds in his hands and put my fingers into them and place my hand into the wound in his side. Eight days later, the disciples were together again. This time Thomas was with them. The doors were locked. But suddenly, as before, Jesus was standing among them. Peace be with you, he said. And he said to Thomas, put your finger here. Look at my hands. Put your hand into the one on my side. Don't be faithless any longer. Believe. My Lord and my God, Thomas exclaimed. Then Jesus told them, you believe because you have seen me. But blessed are those who believe without seeing me. And the disciples saw Jesus do many other miraculous signs in addition to the ones recorded in this book. But these are written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him you will have life by the power of his name. Later on, Jesus appeared again to the disciples beside the Sea of Galilee. And this is how it happened. Several of the disciples were there. Simon Peter, Thomas, nicknamed the twin, Nathaniel from Canaan and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples. Simon Peter said, I'm going fishing. They said, we'll come too, they all said. So they got out on the boat, but they caught nothing all night. At dawn, Jesus was standing on the beach, but the disciples couldn't see who he was. And he called out, friends, have you caught any fish? No, they replied. Then he said, well, throw out your net on the right side of the boat and you'll get, you'll get some. And so they did. And they couldn't even haul in the net because there were so many fish in it. 
Then the disciple Jesus loved said to Peter, It's the Lord! And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his tunic, for he had stripped down for work. And he jumped into the water and headed to shore. The others stayed with the boat and pulled the loaded net to the shore, for they were only about a hundred yards from shore. And when they got there, they found breakfast waiting for them, fish cooking over a charcoal fire and some bread. Bring some of the fish you've just caught, Jesus said. So Simon Peter went aboard and dragged the net to the shore. There were 150 large fish, and, the net, and yet the net hadn't torn. Now come and have some breakfast, Jesus said. None of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Then Jesus served them the bread and the fish. And this was the third time Jesus had appeared to his disciples since he had been raised from the dead. After breakfast, Jesus turned and asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than anyone? Yes, Lord, Peter replied. You know I love you. Then feed my lambs, Jesus told him. And Jesus repeated the question, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, Peter said. You know I love you. Then take care of my sheep, Jesus said. And a third time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt that Jesus had asked him the question a third time. And he said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said, then feed my sheep. I tell you the truth. When you were young, you were able to do as you liked. You dressed yourself, went out wherever you wanted to go. When you're old, you will stretch out your hands and others will dress you and take you where you don't want to go. And Jesus said this to let him know by what kind of death Peter would glorify God. Then Jesus told him, follow me. Now Peter turned around and saw behind them the disciple that Jesus loved, the one who had leaned over to Jesus during supper and asked, Lord, who will betray you? Peter asked Jesus, what about him, Lord? And Jesus replied, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? As for you, simply follow me. So the rumor spread among the community of believers that this disciple wouldn't die, but that isn't what Jesus said. He only said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? So this disciple is the one who testifies to these events and has recorded them here. And we know that this account of things is accurate. Jesus also did many other things. And if they were all written down, I suppose the whole world could not contain the books that would be written. Oh, God bless the reading of his word. That's the whole heart of the entire Bible right there. Everything leads up to that and everything proceeds from that. That is the heart of it. In just a few chapters, the full story of the pivotal moment of all time. So I'm curious, what did you notice? What did you observe in this? Any little piece that stood out? What did you learn? Give me some of your thoughts as you hear this story read. John believed while he was in the tomb, even before the angel. He mm. understands that he believed. There was belief before proof. Okay, for John. Good, good. What else stood out? What did you observe in these people as they experienced these things? Everybody was afraid of everybody. Yeah. Pilate was afraid of the crowd. People were afraid of the Jewish leaders. The Jewish leaders were afraid of Caesar. The Jewish leaders were afraid of Jesus. Jesus was the only one that wasn't afraid, and he was the one that was going to die. <laughs> what else stood out? What did you see? Because 
I think when we notice things in Scripture, that's one of the ways we know that God's trying to tap us on the shoulder with something. So the part that actually stood out to you is probably something that you need to like think about for a second. And it, there's a million options. <laughs> Trace, do I see your hand? A little half hand. Okay, well, you can share half of your thought then. Uh, that Pilate, when, he, they were, when they asked him to change it to he thinks he's the king of the Jews. Yeah. And he just had said in previous, you only have the power because it's been given to you from above. So right. He could have changed that by pressure, but he said it is written. Yeah. He didn't cave to public opinion on that one. He's like, this is what I'm writing. Yeah. Yeah. What else, Larry? The faith and the courage that Jesus had in his father's plan. It's unbelievable. Because we know the end of the story, it like loses half of its fear factor. It loses 90% of its fear. That wasn't the way it was in the moment. It was just, I'm going to die. But he believed and he knew. Yeah, yeah, that's amazing. What else? What stands out, Ellen? Um, when um, Peter denied him three times, and then at the very end of the story, he asked Peter three times to die. Right. And, you know, I, and I, I think there's no coincidence that it was three times that... And, and, then, and then take care of my sheep. So you know, yeah. definitely giving him a message. Yeah, I think I want to end with that one because that'll segue us into the, the thoughts that stood out to me most that I want to give to us to reflect on today. And it's just that you see so many chances, second chances. I, th- I think Peter maybe had seven chances. He had three chances where he denied him. So there's one, two, three, fail, fail, fail. And then he had... Three to be returned. There's at least six. I think I found another one in there where I thought, okay, either passed or failed this. But God is a God of lots of chances. He's a God of choices. I saw choices and chances in here and just thought about what if any of these people had made a different choice in that moment? What if God didn't give a second chance to any one of these people? I just feel like that feels like my life, like second chances and good or bad choices, but God like not making a stick necessarily with the first bad choice, with a failed chance taken. He's bigger than that. And so I see Pilate, like, what were his choices that he made? What choices were based on his obligation as a ruler? What choices were made in declaring a verdict and executing judgment? You know, what choices were made? What chances did people take? I just recognize that in every chance that someone took in this, it was risk. For those who stood up with Jesus, I want to stand beside them. It was risky. You might die with him too. But for all those who stood up against him, it was really risky because what if he's God? You're trying to kill God. That's not going to end well for you. (laughs) There was no safe place. And I think we make our choices sometimes to try to find the safe option. But in the end, it's all chances. Even the ones that seem safest might be the riskiest. We don't know. But within this whole thing, there's the confidence that God's going to make sure that despite all of our bumping into ourselves and choices and chances, the story's going to get where God's story needs to go. God is not going to fail. Pilate can't stop him. Judas can't stop him. Religious leaders can't stop him. Scared disciples can't stop him. Death can't stop him. The tomb can't stop him. Nothing is going to, fear is not going to stop him. Anger is not going to stop him. Ignorance is not going to stop him. But there was ignorance and fear. All those things were there. They're just not capable of derailing God's ultimate plan. And so I think we see in this the the balance between our lives. We live day by day, making choices, hoping they're good ones, taking risks, taking chances, 
but recognizing there is a God who the Bible calls sovereign. Somehow he's able to make things work together for the good of those that are called according to his purpose. But I know as soon as I say that, as soon as I say God's in control, there's actually a danger to that. And the danger is that you feel if God's got in control, who cares? Right? If I'm not meant to be in heaven, it's not going to happen anyway. If this thing isn't meant to help work out, it's just not going to work out. Since God, I don't really have to try. Like, that's actually called fatalism. That's a worldview where you don't believe that anything you do matters, and it's just going to turn out a certain way at the end. And I think sneakily, and this is what I wanted us to reflect on as Christians, I think sometimes we adopt kind of like a Christian fatalism. God's in control, so it's going to work out. And it completely like absolve us from any worrying about the sins we commit along the way. It completely like lets us off the hook for any of the things that we're called to do along the way. As if God's just going to bring about things, and he doesn't need any people, and he doesn't use us, he's not calling us. That's not faith. That's fate. Believing, turning God into fate. This impersonal force that things are just going to work out the way they worked out. Did Jesus seem impersonal to you when he made a fire? and had breakfast with Peter, and said, do you love me? That's not just it all happening to work out in the end. That's a God who cares about every individual person, despite our failings, despite our fear. God takes it all. It's not ignored, and he meets us in those moments and says, yes, but I'm bigger than you, and I'm going to steer you where we're trying to go, where I want this story to go. We're not Christian fatalists. God is not just, this is everything, I've got it set out. Um, Fatalism is thinking of God more like a chess master than a shepherd. You're just a pawn. He's going to move you from square to square. Stand there and take it. This is your square. What was me? I'm in a bad square right now in my life. So I guess that's what God wanted. Hopefully it'll be a good square someday. That's not a walk in faith. That has nothing to do with prayer. That has nothing to do with miracles. That's condemning God than whenever anything bad bad happens to us. It's only praising him on good things. Like That's a weird thing. It's not that. But a shepherd says, we're going to go here. And there are many of us all together. And some are slow. And some are running on ahead. And some got lost. And some got stuck. And one got sick. And he's carrying all of us towards a green pasture towards a good place where he wants us to go. Christian fatalism, um, if we fall into that trap, it sees God more as control than protection. So what's going to get you to the end goal, which is good, good, heaven's good, God is good. Is it the fact that he's going to clamp down his arms on your He has hands on your arms and steer you like a little naughty child to where you have to go and control you. No, 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 get back on the path. Go this way. Or he's like, look, 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 look. Careful, careful, right? You get where you're going, but your attitude towards God is very different depending on how you view him. And that's fatalism versus faith. I believe that God is good. I believe everything this Bible says, 100% of it. There's parts of it I don't understand. There's parts of it that I'm going to learn. There's parts of it I'm going to grow into, like shoes that are still too big for me. Awesome. But when I learn more about God, it'll teach me who he is. And nowhere in there is there a God of the fates. There's a personal God who gave his own personal son to die for personal people so they may have a personal faith and be known individually by every hair on our head and every step we're ever going to take, even before we're born. That's just not faith. That's knowledge. That's God's omniscience. And this fatalism can turn us into thinking of God as a manipulator. 
instead of God as a protector and a loving father. So the Bible has a word for this, and this word scares most people, but for me, this is one of the most encouraging and comforting words in the world. The Bible's word for this way that God moves us along is predestination. And when we think of predestination, it's kind of like, well, things are predestined to turn out a certain way. It turns into fatalism. What's meant to be, it's meant to be. It's going to, God knows. But that's not at all the way the word is meant to be understood. And so if you get nothing else from this morning, let me define that one word for you so that you may know the God who loves you even better. The word for predestination is a two-part word in Greek, pro and horizo. Horizo is where we get horizon. It means a limit, a line, a horizon line. And pro means before. It simply means God has set limits and boundaries beforehand. Boundaries, not handcuffs. Limits to the edge of the path so that you don't go too far and mess it all up. But not a railroad track that once you get on, you're linked into the cars and just goes straight to spite you. The best analogy I've ever been able to think of for this is bowling. And so I'm going to share it with you. If I've shared it with any of you before, then you're, you're a step ahead. And if I mess it up, you can correct me. Go bowling. What are the things along the aisle, along the sides of the lane? <laughs> Being with God is like when you go bowling and you're a kid and they put the bumpers up. You know those inflatable things that go all the way down the gutter so that you actually can't throw a gutter ball? And you're a little kid and you get there and you're kind of like, you drop it and it's going like one millimeter an hour, but slowly going right there. Why is it like bumps into this bumper and then it comes back and it goes bump, then it bumps and bumps and bumps. That's us. That's our entire life. And without God, there's just no bumpers. So every mistake you make, you just go straight in the gutter. You earn that. I earned that. Good for us. You get what you get. But that's not the way it is with God. We don't get what we deserve. Jesus is that bumper. He's like along the side. He's going to the edge. Nope, keep going. Starts coming to a halt. And he's like, he keeps the ball. He's going to keep us going. And some people, they look like rockets, right? They're like straight down the middle and they go and knock over a million pins. And it's like, wow. And other people like me, Maybe more like you, they kind of look more like this, slow and steady with lots of detours, a meandering path, and life doesn't look all that great. Maybe we're not knocking down strikes, but it doesn't matter how many pins you knock down. It just matters that you get to the end. God calls some people to knock down 10 pins, and he calls others to knock down one. Some he gives 10 talents, some he gives five. It does not matter what the score is. It's finishing the game. And when we think of ourselves playing this game of life without God, it's like, all right, we're going to bowl, but here's how we're going to do it. Going to put on a blindfold, going to tie one hand behind your back. We're going to spin you around a lot of times, and as you try to find the lane, people are going to be trying to knock you over. Now, if that describes life that you've experienced, I would agree. That feels more like the natural world. People are trying to get what they want, and when you're in the way, they push you out of the way. They have competing agendas, and it feels like someone's always trying to like barge in. You're just trying to like roll the ball. You're trying to play the game of life the way you see it, and it's impossible. But then we trip and we stumble. We don't actually know where we're going. We're throwing the ball in the wrong direction. And then we realize, oh, I should have been pointing this way. Like Jesus is just the coach. He's like, so let's just take off the blindfold. Now you can see where you're going. I'll tell you where you're going. Here it is. This is how you hold the ball. 
This is how you love someone. This is the right way to do it. And he shows us. This is how you ask for forgiveness. And he shows us. He's done this way. And he rolls. Like, wow, perfect strike, Jesus, every time. No fair. And he's like, it's okay. It's okay. Try again. Try again. Like, this is how you know the Father. This is how prayer feels not like an obligation, but this is how prayer feels like a conversation. It's done this way. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be that. He just shows us. And then as we're going down the way, kind of unsteady, he's like holding us and pushing the ball. And then he's just in every bit of the gutter that we would be in if he wasn't there. Just rerouting, rerouting, rerouting. And there's something to our faith that's just like that. It's just like that. We can see things. You don't actually have a hard decision anymore because something just like is clear. Well, I don't want to do that. God's given me wisdom in that. Like, that would be a foolish decision. But everyone thinks it's a great decision. Like, well, God is there just taking blindfolders off and saying that way that you think, that way that you are raised, this thing you do, that relationship you're in, this decision you're trying to make, the choices we're making, the chances we're taking. He's there just like taking off the blindfold, let you see what you're doing. You're going to make your best role and it's going to be lame and embarrassing, but he doesn't care. We're just kids. We're God's kids. Jesus is our older brother. He knows how to play the game and he's excellent. Excellent at the game. He's perfect at the game. But predestination just means that God will make sure our ball gets to the end. Predestination does not mean that he's going to make us look pretty along the way. Predestination does not mean that he's saying, put your foot here and forcing us. He's like, no, come on. Give it a try. Oh, you messed up? All right, here, come here. He's just going to make sure that his plans are fulfilled. That's predestination. It's limits. Predetermined limits. Not controlled robotic actions. And so for me, that's the most encouraging thing ever because then I get to make a mistake and it's okay. I get to not worry that I'm going to fail too bad, doubt too much, anything. God's going to work towards his goals. But I have choices to make and chances to take and you do as well every day. Do not just stand there, not even picking up the bowling ball, just looking at it in the return and being like, oh, I wonder how I'm going to roll a strike and never doing anything with it. God took the failures of all the disciples and he turned them into the beginnings of his church. All these failures that we saw were the beginnings of the great thing that we're participating in. To know that God is there and will make sure that those bumpers are up, make sure we get to the end is the most comforting and reassuring thing in the entire world. Um, in 1 Peter 1 and in Romans 8, I want to read two passages to, to confirm and just let you know these are not just my thoughts about this. In 1 Peter 1, the Bible says it this way. It's a letter, so Peter introduced himself. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, I'm writing to those who are chosen, elect exiles of the dispersion in all of these, cit in all of these cities, he says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So you are chosen because God knows in advance which of us will play the game his way. Which one of us will come into the bowling alley at all and even want to play? God puts up the bumpers knowing that we are his in advance. In Romans 8.28, it puts it this way. Paul writes, We know that for those who love God, all things come together for good to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, set limits for, protection for, so that he knows they, they're going to be his. He's going to set up the bumpers to enable them, despite ourselves, to get to the end of the lane. And those he predestined, he also calls. So by the time we hear God calling us, he's already had a multi-step process going. 
started way before we enter onto the scene. The calling comes before he has set things up. We're born into some set of bumpers. The family that we're born into, the place and time they were born into, right? There's certain limits already. And he's also set up things because he knows at some point in our life we're going to need someone who's going to be like, stop. And that limit will be there when we need it. And we'll bounce back onto the lane. He set up all these things before because even before he set up the limits, he looked into the future and says, I know who are mine. This is not the manipulative God that chooses some to go to heaven and chooses some to go to hell. This is not the God that takes away all of our choice and said, you're my robots and here's my decision. This is a God who looks in advance at his children and says, I know how you're going to turn out. And because of that, let me help in any way I can. And so it's up to us to make the choice and to take the chance to step into that relationship with the God who can actually get us all the way down the lane. Our job is to enter in, to accept this process that has already begun, this long, eternal, step-by-step -step knowing and preparing so that God can get us to the end of his story. So the Easter story to me, this is a story with bumpers in it, left and right. This is a story of many different people playing that game so differently. Pilate played the game differently. He acted on his choices differently than did maybe Mary, the mother of Jesus. That they're all making choices and all of them had risks associated. But for us, the only acceptable choice is to say, I'd like to know what I'm supposed to be doing. Can someone please open my eyes so that life isn't just a random set of chances? can't live that way anymore. All right, God, you've got some wisdom? Open my eyes so I can actually see. And I don't want to have to reinvent the wheel to figure out how to be a good person, how to do everything right, how to know how to love my wife or be a father to my children. or be a, I need someone to teach me. Thank you. Just show me, how does this work? And then when my bowling ball careens off the edges and bounces over into the next lane, to not have to feel ashamed. But that's actually how it goes. That's the way it's supposed to work because we are not Christ. We are being made like Christ. He's shaping us. He's tutoring us. He's training us. He's loving us. He's taking our place. And this is the Easter story. It's a story of beautiful predestination, beautiful predetermined boundaries. It didn't matter that Judas betrayed him. When we get betrayed, it feels like the end of all things. And it hurts so deeply. It's not the end. That's one person's choice. Betrayal is a choice. And God can handle that. There are bumpers for that. And being in relationships after being betrayed feels like you're taking a risk. <laughs> He's like, I don't want that to happen again. But there's bumpers for that too. And if Jesus shows us how to walk through that, how to roll the ball through that scenario, we'll see the wisdom of his way. We'll see God working all things together and we'll bounce slowly in the right direction. And it doesn't matter how fast we go and it doesn't matter how many pins we knock down. We just need to make it to the end. So this is where I want to ask you all just to really be super reflective and introspective. Like this morning is its choice of its own sort. This morning is a choice. You chose to be here. You're being confronted with the fact that the world is not your friend. And you might want to try to work things all together for the good, but you're actually not in control of the world. 
And a lot of times we're not even in control of ourselves. Like, why did I say that? Why did I do that? So we're here because we wanted Jesus that death is not too much. Failure is not too much. Weakness is not too much. Anger is not too much. Because God is greater. And he can steer us in the right direction. We can just come before him and say, please show me how. Forgive me. And so that's how I want to close as we, we close with a song in just a moment. This is where I want us to be. I'm going to ask everyone to just bow for a moment and just think to yourself, you have choices that you're making right now. And either they're the ones that are going to put you down the center of the lane or they're ones that are going to throw you into the bumper. There are choices that you have made that make you feel like it's too late. You're in the gutter. But I promise you, if Peter wasn't in the gutter, you don't have to be either. It's in God's control. You don't get to set up the bumpers. So I think this morning is going to be a morning for some people to say, like, I'm tired of just trying to figure out the game and make it work on my own. And I'm sorry for all the bad throws, the bad rolls. But for some others, it's going to be, Jesus, I think you're trying to tell me something. We've been working together for a while now. I know I'm in the lane, but man, the bowling ball is rolling so slowly. Can we pick this up a little bit? And he's like, not my fault it's going slow. <laughs> like, that's you. <laughs> like, this is on you. This is on me. Like, these are our choices and chances within the predetermined limits that God has set so we won't fail if we love him. Right? So just bow your heads for a moment. I'm going to say a prayer, and here's how I'd like to ask you to respond. If at any moment during this prayer you feel like I'm saying something that applies to you, I would like you to just quietly stand where you are. So that by the end of the prayer, there'll be some, a few, many, whomever, people standing that while our eyes are closed, I can just pray for personally. I won't name you, but I want to pray for you. This is a moment we have to make a choice. This is a choice morning. It's a I take a chance morning. Everything's risky. If you don't take a chance with God, you're taking a chance to try to do it without Him. So it's not about whether. We are taking chances and making choices every day. It's just whether we're doing it within God's way. So let me pray for us. If at any point the Holy Spirit nudges you, please just stand where you are and be prayed over this morning. Father God, I know there are people in this room that, myself included, need to turn over our choices and our chances to you because we've been trying to make our decisions on our own. We have neglected to come before you and say, you know best, what should I do? And we're trying to figure it out. It's beyond us, Father. This life is beyond us. Our decisions are beyond us. So for everyone in the room, Father, who is wrestling with unknowable decisions and wisdom that seems elusive, I pray that you would bless them with taking the blindfold off. Father God, for everybody that's in this room that is playing your way, seeking to be aligned with you, has come into the bowling alley and said, please teach me, but just doesn't know how. We ask for your grace and your mercy, and we pray that you would equip us further today than we were yesterday. Equip us with a knowledge of you so that we see ourselves more clearly. Equip us with a realization of our own sins so that we can say, I'm sorry for them, and stop doing and saying and thinking and believing the things that are actually tying us up and pushing us over. Please bring your forgiveness 
kindness to everyone and your equipping to everyone in this room who is called to your family but just struggling all along the way. For everybody who is in this room, Father, who does not know you but is looking in at the bowling alley like from the windows on the outside, I pray that you give them courage to try your way to recognize outside it's dark and outside it's lonely and outside there is no belonging and there is no becoming. There is just trying and there is shame and there is guilt, but inside there are lights on and there's heat and there is a warm welcome from you and the promise that you will get us to the end of the lane. So for every person, Father, here that has not yet said, I'm yours, teach me. I pray that you give them courage to take that step and make that choice, to risk the things that they've been trying in favor of the things that you are going to tell them to try. For everyone in this room, Father, who is looking at the choices before or ahead and feeling afraid, I pray that you would take away that fear and you would reassure them with the beautiful truth of predestination. There's no reason to fear if we know we make it to the end. So for everyone in this room that just feels afraid and even sometimes don't even know why but just gripped by it, I pray that you would take that fear away. For everyone in this room, Father, who thinks they don't need you, I, I humbly pray and gently pray that you would humble them and show them that they need you. It is not possible to survive this game without you. And I want everyone in this room to make it to the end of the lane. And that is not possible without you, Father. So please grant humility and even maybe a little bit of uh, brokenness of spirit and humbling of pride for those who just don't think that you're all that important and don't think that you're necessary. Uh, Father God, please gently show them that is not the case. And for all of us, Father, who are in love with you, and who are trying our best, albeit weakly and poorly, to roll the ball your way, I pray that you'd help us to not be just focused on ourselves, but to look around at the people next to us, people sitting in the seats behind us, the people standing next to us, to say, uh, maybe we could help them learn a technique or a tip or a trick the equipment or the gear or the prayer or the scripture or the, the spiritual disciplines or the fasting or the hope or the perseverance that you've taught us to make it possible so that they might excel. Help us to be invested in people around us excelling and not just to selfishly want to get better ourselves. Father, you know the choices that we will make this day. Please be in them ahead of time. Put a bumper for us for today for the decisions we'll need to make. And Father, you know the risks that we don't know, we're oblivious to. There's blindly walking, naively walking. Please, in this day, protect us from the things that we don't even know are coming so that we can walk through them, blessed and protected, like your children and like your sheep. For each person in this room this morning, we ask God's blessing on you. For those that are standing, submit yourself to the Lord. Submit to him the desires of your heart and he will respond with the wisdom of his mind, knowing what comes next. Father, for each one standing, I pray that you would respond to their step of faith. I pray that your Holy Spirit would give them forgiveness, would give them hope, and would fill them with new life on this Resurrection Sunday. We thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much for hope. There's just not any of it out there, but we can find it in you. We thank you for it. It is not naive hope. It is true hope. It is real hope. It is proven hope. And thank you for your son proving the point beyond all shadow of doubt. 
like to ask everyone please to rise. Father, I ask your blessing on this congregation as we go on our days. I pray that you'd use us as your hands and your feet. I pray that you would equip us, give us words to say when our family functions, and may we glorify you in everything we do. And it's in Jesus' risen name that we pray. Amen.